The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. There's an awesome scene at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where the Apostle John is shown the throne room of heaven and at the center of all angelic powers and beings, the object of worship is Jesus. One of those beings says to John, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, John says, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the, uh, and the elders. And if you keep reading, all of heaven breaks loose. And for six verses, they pour out worship upon him for who he is, what he did, and what he'll be forever. Lion and lamb quite a paradox actually those are two images that don't seem to go together do they lion an animal who makes prey of others strong majestic um, dangerous it's a kingly image by the way but lamb easily preyed upon weak lowly harmless pure a sacrifice animal, and the Bible uses both of these images simultaneously to portray Jesus. Now, for some of us here, just talking about that to you, your your soul's kind of stirring and you're rejoicing, and for others of us here, you hear that and you might be thinking to yourself, it sounds like a mystical fairy tale for naive people who will worship anything. Or you might be thinking, uh, how, how did we get from... Christmas baby Jesus that I celebrated at Christmas or or the great teacher prophet Jesus I heard about to this guy what's that all about either way I'm here to tell you here uh, this morning as we uh, start into a series that the most important question that you need to settle for yourself is a series of questions it is who is Jesus really Why does it matter? And what must I do about it? And some of you have that answered already. Some of you think you have that answered. And some of you are not sure that you really care. Wherever you're at this morning here, I just want to ask you this question. Are you sure you want to bank your life on whatever that answer is? Now, the best way to dig into that is to look carefully at the life of Jesus to find out, hey, if the Lion of the Lamb is at the center of heavenly worship, if that's the end game, well, tell me about the beginning. What what, what did that look like? How did this Jesus live in such a way and die in such a way that at the end of human history, he's someone who as John Piper so uh, wonderfully puts it, is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion who has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. 
which is why we are going right back to Jesus' emergence on the scene, the beginning of his ministry, and from now until Christmas, with a break for the summer, we're going to study a book in the New Testament called the Gospel of Mark. More on Mark in a moment. A little background. It's the first written account of the life of Jesus. It's uh, fast-moving and it is hard-hitting. By far, it is the shortest of the four Gospels in the Bible, noted as much for what it omits as for what it includes. So in Mark, you won't find any genealogy, no birth narrative, no childhood visit to the temple, no sermon on the mount, and very few parables. Mark, he's a bottom-line guy. And he really wants to write in rapid-fire succession... Uh, about specific events from the life uh, and ministry of Jesus because he wants to prove to a Roman and global audience that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He wants to prove that he, he served, suffered, died, and rose again. And he does it in such a way, it's very interesting, that in the first eight chapters you tend to see more of the lion-like characteristics of jesus because you see his authority and power so much and in the last eight chapters you tend to see his lamb-like mission to the cross mark just really wants to give you the real jesus straight up his character and actions did you know that by the time he wrote this book several letters in the new testament had already been written james galatians First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, even Romans, at the very least. But after about thirty years from the, the life of uh, of the death of Jesus, as the apostles and even the eyewitnesses were starting to die out, the gospel writers started, starting with Mark, decided that they needed to gather the accounts into an orderly telling of his life. And that it was very needed to prevent people from losing touch with the real Jesus. Or making things up about Jesus that they preferred. A Jesus story that fit their preferences. Which is why Mark is so relevant today. Do you know why? Everyone has some angle on Jesus. In some way, everyone's interested in Jesus. But you know what? They want him on their own terms. And the problem is, when you craft a Jesus, when you, you, when you custom order a designer Jesus to fit your preferences, you're going to get a Jesus that can't transform you. He can't challenge you. He certainly can't contradict you. You know why? He's just you. You made him. If you want a Jesus that can really change you, really help you, spiritually transform you, you got to get to the real Jesus. The theme of the passage uh, today is preparing to meet Jesus. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? 
I want to walk through these opening verses and find out what preparation for Jesus just looks like. That's exactly how Mark sets the stage for this book. It may be how God is setting the stage for your own heart this morning. We're going to do it in just four key words. Okay, here they are. Mission, promise, challenge, and anticipate. Don't worry if you didn't catch them. I'm going to go through that. But let's start with this first one. Mission. Mark was prepared. Mark was prepared. Look at verse 1. Right out of the gate, Mark shows he's a man on a mission giving us his deepest conviction about the theme of the book. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Bam. Just right into it. The good news, the gospel, which is uh, uh, what the book is going to be all about, centers on him and the forgiveness of sins and salvation that can only be accessed through Jesus. Who is Jesus? He says so. He's the Messiah. Or in some of your translations, the Christ. Well, I thought Christ was his last name. No, no. Christ is actually a title in the Greek, Christos means Messiah, means the anointed king to come. And when Mark then combines that title with son of God, he is driving the nail right through the wood board to make it very clear that this is a unique person who has an unparalleled relationship with Almighty God. The idea of his deity and pre-existence. Son of God is Mark's favorite title for Jesus. You're going to see it all through the book. And interestingly, it is acknowledged uh, out of the mouths of uh, a bunch of people. Some are obvious, like here, Mark. And uh, in chapter 8, Peter actually comes to his senses and sees it. Uh, Jesus himself claims it at his trial. And who can forget the Roman centurion who, when he sees Jesus on the cross, says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Did you know, though, that mostly the disciples didn't get it until after His resurrection? And and I just want to say to you, listen, if the disciples, after three years with Jesus, didn't get it until after His resurrection, there is hope for those who seem to you to be the farthest away from ever seeing Him today. Yeah, Mark was prepared to meet Jesus. Now, a little on the story of Mark and how he got this fired up and his conviction and how he was prepared. Uh, To this day, it's a story that blows my mind. I, I want you to get this because the more you understand Mark, the more this book will mean to you as he speaks into your life. His name is actually John Mark. John, his uh, Hebrew name, Ioannis. Uh, Mark, or Marcus, was his Latin name. It was very common for uh, Jewish Christians living in the Roman Empire at that time to sort of take both and include include it. So John Mark's going to show up as a common name. Um, He's the nephew of Barnabas, a wealthy and key leader in early Christianity. Uh, His mother also, probably a wealthy widow, owned one of the larger homes in Jerusalem, which would be hard to come by, by the way, at that time. This was the home where the early church met for worship after Jesus died. This is, this is the, this is what he was exposed to. And by the way, young people, listen to me. 
this writer of this gospel, he's in his late teens. He's a young adult at best finishing up high school. So I don't, for all of you wondering if your life can ever have significance for God, I really want you to dig. Mark is you. The influence is somewhere maybe in his early 20s. He goes and joins Barnabas and Paul on this first missionary journey to plant churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And about halfway through the trip, um, I don't know what happened. I don't know what was going on with him. He, he said, I can't handle this. I can't handle the intensity of this. I'm, I'm out of here. And halfway through the trip, he bails, goes back to Jerusalem. It is not a good scene. Paul felt betrayed, thought he was a quitter. So when they were then uh, loading up the docks at the, a few years later for the second missionary journey, there's uh, Barnabas and Paul down at the dock. Uh, Mark shows up there. Paul's like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I'm coming with you. He says, you're coming with me. Really? No, you're not. And Acts 15 actually tells about this whole story and what happened. And, and Paul basically was like, hey, you're a quitter. We need people who stick with the program. And this led to a massive, painful split between Paul and Mark's uncle Barnabas. And they couldn't reconcile it. Paul left with Silas for a missionary trip. Barnabas takes Paul to Cyprus. They go on a missions trip. I just got to say, you know what? Thank God for people like Barnabas with the gift of encouragement. Because I can just imagine that Barnabas pulled Paul, Mark aside and he said to him, John, Mark, it's okay, son. God's not finished with you yet. There's still more ministry for you to do in your life. And he was right. And he served with Barnabas. And then we find out that after that, he spent significant years in his uh, adult life working directly with the apostle Peter, who took him under his wing. And for years they worked together. I, I can't help believe that there would be a unique kinship between both these guys. Do you know why? Both of them bailed on Jesus at crucial moments. Think about Peter. How long do you think it took him to get over the fact that at Jesus' darkest moment, he denied knowing him? And then Mark's got to deal with the fact that he knew he blew it on a missions trip. There was a kinship there. Think of the growth, though, for Mark, all the insights into the life of Jesus. Mark would get firsthand from the chief apostle. With Peter as his main source of insight, do you know many scholars informally refer to this as the gospel of Peter? So much love did Peter have for Mark that later on in 1 Peter 5, he refers to Mark as his beloved son. But wait, there's more. Mark and Paul eventually, years later, reconcile. I don't know how or what happened but while while paul's in prison he tells timothy his protege go get mark for me he is useful for us in ministry and then we find out later in another book that uh, paul from prison sends mark out as his own delegate to represent him to some churches now i love this story 
of John Mark's life. And here's why I'm belaboring the point for all of us today. If you're here this morning and you've blown it or quit or failed, God's not done with you. And there's going to be an opportunity, not only in some cases for you to get right with God if you're not right with Him and you know it, but if that wasn't the problem, even if it's just, hey, Leo, if, if I, I served so hard, I tried so hard, I was out there laying it down for Jesus, but I burnt out, I didn't meet expectations, I blew it. Where's God? Because right now I feel lost. I got to tell you, God knows exactly what he's doing when he picks up his people. And he restores them and then he puts them in his places of opportunity for what he wants to do in their life. And, and all of that is what prepared Mark to be able to write this book. Mark encountered the stupendous claims of Jesus Christ and he had come to trust in him personally. He had been transformed by him, which led him to be able to say to the world through this book... I have met Jesus. He changed my life. Would you like to meet him? He'll change your life too. The evangelistic heart of this book is hanging over its entirety. And here's where he goes now with this second thing. Promise. Look at verses 2 and 4 with me. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Who is this you, by the way? Who is this your? Verse 3, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for Him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Now, when I say, by the way, God was prepared, uh, I don't mean that God had to prepare Himself, you know, frantically, like most of you did this morning when you were preparing to come for church. Just whipping things together, hoping to make it on time. No, 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 no. What I'm talking about is this sovereign God had everything related to this book on his timeline. And he was prepared. Mark uses three prophecies that he rolls up into one, a common practice in the New Testament to demonstrate that God, in his sovereignty, was working this. He draws from, uh, you don't need to write these down, but Ezekiel 23, uh, Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 43. He puts them all together, and they're all saying the same thing. Especially Isaiah 40, written 600 years before. And they're saying, someday... The Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. Go back, go back uh, later and read the entirety of Isaiah 40. It'll blow your mind and you'll see the complete picture. But the bottom line is, someday the Lord himself, that's the you in verse 2. The Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory and a messenger will be there to call out and prepare the way for him. So actually, these verses aren't just about John the Baptist, as some of us have just read it. It's actually about two people. It's two characters. Mark identifies the messenger with John the Baptist, but he also is clearly identifying the Lord of Isaiah 40 with the coming 
Jesus. Did you know it was customary at the time, and it still happens, I think, that if a king is going to arrive in your country, your government goes through a lot of preparations to uh, get things ready for his arrival. I mean, things are cleaned up. Um, roads are fixed, roads are paved, everything is prepared for, for the coming. Messengers, announcers are, 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 do all sorts of stuff in advance of the arrival of this king. If you didn't do that, man, that's, that's bad. So it would be really strange, don't you think, that if when Jesus Christ, God incarnate, steps onto the stage of human history, that he comes and nothing is prepared that there was no one to announce his arrival. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, you find out that there were actually two. First, when he was born, an angel took care of the announcement. And now, as he starts into his ministry, there's a messenger. A messenger to prepare. Because it's been 30 years since his birth. Now, do you know why this is so incredible? And it's something no other religion offers or even agrees is a good thing. And it's this. The immortal became mortal. The unapproachable now becomes someone you can touch. Now becomes someone you can have a personal relationship. Is someone who is drawn near to you. That God is so loving and so intent on our salvation that he breaks through the wall separating divinity from us people on earth here, that separation, and was incarnated once uniquely in Jesus Christ, the world would never be the same. God keeps his promises. He was prepared. And I need this to assure your hearts this morning today because, listen, if God is capable of, of, of keeping cosmic, global-level promises, don't you think that He's capable of keeping personal promises to you in your own life, to those who are His children? Some of you need to hear this. You can trust Him. Friends, I've been a Christian for somewhere over 35 years. And I say this to my shame, but um, I'll tell you that there have been there have been times, there have been dark nights of the soul. I would say, where I've said to the Lord that I know so well, Lord, I know the Word. I can point right now to fifty promises you have made me. Through Jesus, but I'm not seeing it right now. Nothing makes sense. I'm dying on the vine, God. Now, I don't have time here to go through all the nuances of suffering or pain or trauma or the consequences of sin in our life or all the other conditions we, we can draw on to amplify that, that thing that I just did with God that I'm telling you about. There is a place for all of that in the discussion. But fundamentally, when I say that to God, what's my mistake? My mistake is I'm forgetting or ignoring that this is a promise-keeping God. 
And just because I can't see it right now, what he's doing today at 1049, does not mean that he is not at work working out his own promises in your life. It's evidence of a growth area for patience. Look, Israel had to wait 600 years for this promise to come through. I'm telling you, God works mysteriously, but he never breaks his word. Now, notice this third thing. We're going to see John in action. Challenge. John prepared others. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. Uh, Without question, John prepared others. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Uh, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate uh, locusts and wild honey. Um, yeah, I've got to choke that down for a bit. Hang on for a moment. <laughs> Let me actually work backwards from the description and, and the dietary stuff, and then we'll get to the real thing. Uh, when it says uh, he, he came wearing a camel hair clothing, um, we're not talking about some bespoke custom camel blazer made by Tom Ford with uh, matching Nordstrom designer shoes, okay? He's as wild-looking as the wilderness that he is preaching in. That's John. And there is a fascination for so many of the people that were coming out. And that fascination is because there's been no prophet in Israel uh, for uh, about 400 years. And he looks kind of like the guy they read about in the Old Testament, Elijah, from 2 Kings 1. And there was at least speculation. Who is this guy? Because he looks like one of those prophets. Are we getting it again? But he was not dressing to impress, that's for sure. He was not dressing to try to identify with a certain age group to kind of say, hey, look, I'm kind of like one of you, so we can, you know, I'm very, very relevant to who you are. He he does not care. I'm not quite sure about the health food thing going on here with the locusts and the honey, except to say, interestingly, I did check it out. They were kosher, uh, according to Old Covenant dietary laws. Um... But, but, but why the wilderness? John, if you want an audience, man, why aren't you in the city? Go find where the people are. D- didn't you read the strategy books on church uh, growth? I mean, didn't you, d- did you not think about getting a good location with highway proximity, uh, lots of parking and a a great facility. If that's what you want, if you need people to come, you got to do those things. Come on, John. The wilderness is like the most difficult place to get to. If you want to make it hard for people to come to hear you, pick the wilderness. And that's exactly where John is. And yet it says in the text that pretty much the majority of the Judean countryside and Jerusalem is just going out. They can't stop. Do you know what's significant about the wilderness? In the Bible, it's a common theme that the wilderness is where you meet God. Moses, burning bush, wilderness. 
Jacob wrestling with God. Wilderness. Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal and then meeting God afterwards. Wilderness. Israel, the nation, out of Egypt. Wilderness for 40 years. The wilderness is the place where you can't survive unless God intervenes in your life and provides for you. No water, God provides water out of a rock. No food, God gives manna. No spiritual life, God sends Jesus. And in preparation, John the messenger is there to fulfill his role. And boy, I can tell you, he did not take preaching classes at any Bible college or seminary to be relevant or attractive to ensure that he was a draw because this boy was fearless. I mean, when the religious elites all came from Jerusalem to check him out, I mean, he he identifies them quickly and it's like, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Start producing fruit that goes with repentance. Well, the people love that. I can tell you that. But he didn't stop with them. He then talks to the He sits everyone down. Thousands are coming every single day. And this is going on for potentially years. He sits people down and he preaches to them about their sin. He warns them about judgment. He speaks, he, 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 his message is stop playing games with God. Return to the Lord. And incredibly, it would appear that there's some sort of revival because the conviction of God descends on the people and they started forming endless lines every single day to be baptized by John in the Jordan River, repenting of their sins. Do you know some writers say that over 300,000 people potentially were baptized through the ministry of John? I'm going to tell you, though it may not seem so obvious, it is a gift that John was preaching straight up and direct to them about sin and judgment because when someone is awakened to the reality of their sin and the reality of a coming judgment, they are prepared for the good news of a Savior whom we're going to meet next week, who alone brings forgiveness, freedom, and a new life. Now, verse 5 here, we have this thing, the baptism of John, and some of you are like, yeah, what's that all about? And uh, next week I'm going to get into the baptism um, of Jesus and how it relates to uh, Christians today. But this thing going on with John, what's he doing? I didn't know this until I started reading authors about it. But did you know he didn't just invent being in the water in some way? In Israel, before John, there had always been what you might call washings or ritual, ritual purifications with water. The Jews understood that they needed to wash their hands before going into the temple. It was a symbolic way of saying, I need to be clean before God, who's holy. Even Gentiles, if they even wanted to go into the court of the Gentiles or the temporal area, uh, they needed to wash their hands and pour water over themselves. The idea was ritual purification to symbolize, I need to be clean before God. 
Here's the thing. You always did this to yourself. The Gentiles did self-immersion. The Jews did self-cleansing. For the first time ever, John the Baptist says to the Jews and the Gentiles here in the wilderness, No, i got to baptize you. All of you. I don't care about whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. I don't care about your economic background. I don't care about uh, what you've done in your life. I don't care about your status, your religion. Uh, in, I, the king is coming. And my job as his messenger is, i got to baptize you. That's my job. Later, Jesus will have to baptize you. I do it with water. He's going to do it in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what he's saying. He is saying... And this is going to be a challenge for some of us. He's saying you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself clean before the righteous God, the righteous coming king. Now, if you're here today and you know that you would say that you're not a Christian, maybe you don't even know uh, what to make of what's going on here today or the people here or me, maybe it's all weird to you. I just want you to know you're welcome here. I want you to hear that God has something for you. And you need to keep coming so you can find out more about this Jesus. You really do. You owe it to yourself. Now, I want to talk to those in the room who are believers. So for for the people I just addressed, let me talk to... uh, Christians for a moment. Some of you are already thinking to yourself, take it easy there, new guy. We can vote you out. (laughs) I want to talk to professing believers for a moment. Some of you are trying so hard to be or to demonstrate to others that you are such a good Christian That you are in effect slipping into the hamster wheel of performance and you may not even know it's happening right now. So you try to live the perfect Christian life. I'm going to master Bible study. I'm going to out-volunteer everyone. I'm going to give like crazy to the church. I'm going to pray two hours every morning starting at four. And I might go till the rest of the day. And I'm going to clean up my behavior and I'm going to do it all right and that'll get her done. And then I'll be acceptable for God. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Every one of those things are good things. They're part of being a disciple, okay? But if you think that by doing that, that puts God in your debt that he owes you, you've missed the point of the gospel. That is called moralism. And you need this series in Mark more than I think you knew when we started. Well, okay, that's a good caution, Leo. I'll take that under advisement. I, I, I need to hear that this morning. But, but, but Leo, listen, there are, there, are peop- there are believers, there are self-professing believers in this room this morning that have things going on in their lives. It's pretty, pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. Are you just handing get-out-of-jail-free uh, cards this morning? Is that what you're doing? First, the fact that you might be uh, thinking of others too much 
Um, that might be a topic for another day, but okay, okay. I, I do want to speak to those of you that might be in that camp this morning. You profess to be a Christian, yet in reality, let's be honest, your life shows that you really don't care about the things of God. Your life choices are inconsistent with Christ. Your heart is far from God. You're not serious about cleaning up things in, the, in your life that the Bible says no to and that the Holy Spirit is pressing in on you. You're pushing back, running away. Things like how you run your business or who you're sleeping with outside of the covenant of marriage. Addictions that you refuse to address. Maybe anger lying and slander that controls you and anyone anyone that even lovingly gently tries to talk to you about you're like bam i'm under grace you say so get away from me you legalist well in the spirit of of john the baptist this morning i just have one thing to say wake up Listen to these words. I can't improve upon what the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament today said. Hebrews 3, verse 7 and 12. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firmly to the very end. God help us all. Final thing. Anticipate. Anticipate. John prepared himself. Look at verse 7 and 8. Look at his humility here. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, he points to the fact that his baptism was just an outward pointing to the one who, when you receive him by faith, are given a new heart inwardly and sealed by the Holy Spirit. It sets up next week's passage well. Now, it's pretty clear from reading the Gospels that when John does talk about himself... He's doing it because of all the questions he keeps getting from all of the religious elites who come down and they keep pressing him, pestering him. Who are you really? Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? Now, if that didn't mean anything to you, he's referring to something Moses said in Deuteronomy, referring to, it's a prediction to the Messiah to come, Deuteronomy 18. Um, But John's like, nope, I'm not him either. They say, okay, so now that we've established who you're not, who are you? 
And John's the kind of guy that would respond with like, well, I really don't have much to say about myself. I can tell you I'm a voice called to shout. I can tell you I'm a finger called to point to the one. Behold, here comes the king. Prepare yourself. Now, what's interesting is what he could have said. He could have said, oh, you want to know about me? Well, first of all, I come from the priestly family uh, of Zacharias, who serves in the temple of Jerusalem. (laughs) He could have said, I'm the kid that was filled with the Holy Spirit in my mother's womb the day I was born. He could have said, I'm actually the cousin of the coming Messiah. All of those things are true. What a great business card or LinkedIn profile that would have made. But he didn't. He understood his role. And little did he know that Jesus would say later on about him, Matthew 11, Jesus says, I assure you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. He exuded humility. So when you read verse 7, that's not insecurity. Some of you people here today, you struggle with that. You're like, I'm a loser. I'm lousy. I can't do anything. That's not John here. That's not his heart. Christianity is not about some unhealthy self-hatred. He's saying, when I consider the surpassing worthiness of Christ, I'm not interested in talking about me, except to say, I don't even feel worthy to tie up his shoes. That's how great Jesus is. And John was getting a hold of what Jesus would later say. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, that's where real life is. We find our identity. We find ourselves in him. And that's what I'm praying will happen in your life whether for the very first time becoming a believer or if you are a believer already, an awakening that you've never had before in your life that happens to you as you, like John, hold Jesus with awe. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning in anticipation in anticipation of the fact that we are going to see your Son in all his glory. And Lord, I just want to pray for everyone here assembled at Summerside Community Church, anyone listening to this message, that you would do exactly what none of us can do on our own, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus Christ to us in such a way that we're prepared to say, I lay it all down. I bow my knee before the King. You are worthy. I am not in and of myself. Change me, transform me, save me, forgive me. I pray, Lord, that you would move in this church in a way that we can't even anticipate because only you know and have designs for the plans and purposes in this church that you've already laid down far in advance. We say these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.